The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. You know, as uh, my kids get older and more involved in more and more things outside of the house, uh, Megan and I have grown in seeing the importance of uh, family dinner time around the table, okay? And that's something that's always been important to us. It was easier when the kids were, were younger. Um, but the level of importance begins to tick up for us as we begin to wrestle with how fleeting the season of life is when all of our kids are here at home with us. Uh, so as often as we can, you know, when, when I'm uh, not out with ministry obligations or we're not off with track practices or dance classes or uh, choir rehearsals or band concerts or, you know, just spent and don't have the energy for it sometimes, you know, we come together around the big black table in our dining room to eat together. We can't do it right now. There's a big puzzle there. We're going to have to do something about that, right? But we, we, as often as we can, we like to come together around this big black table in our dining room and it's, it's nothing fancy, you know, uh, but if you were a creeper, you know, watching in one of our windows or something like that, you would see some things, you would notice some things that, that we might say um, express our bumgarnerness, okay? Uh, for example, because Jesus is central in our home, we pray before we eat. We will hold hands and, uh, and, and we'll pray together. Sometimes I pray, sometimes Megan prays or one of the girls prays. Sometimes it's a short prayer. Sometimes we use it as an opportunity to pray for people who are in our lives or friends or bigger things in the world, but it's something that we do. Uh, we'll do highs and lows, or, you know, roses and thorns, or my favorite name for it is blessings, bummers, and burdens, you know, where we will share something that we see that God has done something good in our life today, or something that was just a bummer, or a, a burden that we're carrying, maybe longer than a day, something that we want to ask each other for prayer for, or something like that. After eating, when we're not rushing off to the next thing, we'll spread Bibles around to everyone. And, you know, we're all readers in the house at this age, and we'll take turns, maybe just a few verses, and, and work through maybe just half a chapter, and we'll chat about it a, a little bit. And I, I wish that that was every night. I wish I could stand up here and say, man, we're just knocking it out of the park with this thing. Um, but we're not. Honestly, it's sometimes just once or twice a week right now. And uh, I'd like it to be more, but we operate probably like a lot of you in fits and starts, you know? And if you creeped on us long enough, you'd come to notice some of our idiosyncrasies that involve us around the dinner table as well. You know, how I'm always the last one to the table. Everyone's always waiting for me. They're like, what is dad doing in the kitchen? Usually I'm putting, you know, more food than needs to be on the plate or something like that. Um, or how there's one kid in the family who won't touch any foods that are mixed together. You know what I'm talking about, parents. Um, or, you know, we'll drive each other crazy with things that we occasionally do, like interrupt each other at the table when someone's trying to talk or, uh, I don't know, chew our food with our mouth open from time to time or we'll fuss about whose turn it is to, to, to clean up or to wipe down the table. There's inside jokes, there's joy, there's laughter, there's grumpiness, tears, <laughs> attitudes at times, right? And all of this factors into what dinner time looks like around the Bumgarner family dinner table. Um, see, who we are as a family shapes what we do. But it's also true that what we do when gathered around that table shapes who we are. Uh, Pastor Craig, there's studies out there, right? Pastor Craig, I think uh, about a month ago when he was preaching, he referenced a, a study on the impact of regular meal times around a, the, the table for a family. It's shaping. What we do shapes who we are. Now, we're in this season on the church that, that we're calling ecclesia. And, and the question that we're asking this morning is, 
Why go to church? Maybe that's timely. I, I don't know. Why, why go to, is, and you, you might notice, too, if you're here last week, it's a little bit of a trick question. Be, because, you know, we'll understand from last week that the church isn't really something that you go to. It's who we are. It's the called out together, we said last week. It's a people, yes, but it's a, it's a people who, who gather. It's not just the gathering. The church isn't just the gathering. It's more than a gathering, but it's never less. So why do we gather? Well, because coming together like we are right now in what we call corporate worship, it's a little bit like a family dinner. And just like who my family is, right, as Bumgarner shapes what we do and vice versa, who we are as the church shapes what we do. And conversely, what we do as the church shapes who we are. Who are we? Well, we covered that last week. That's what all last week was about, right? We're the ecclesia, the called out together ones. Remember, we're not a random collection of Lone Ranger Christians who just so happen to meet here every Sunday for an individualized spiritual experience that we've chosen or prefer over other options in the city. No, we're a body. We're a family. We're the called out together. That's who we are. And who we are as the church, it shapes what we do. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to that first passage that, that Brian read a, a minute ago. It's Acts chapter 20. And it, if you don't have a Bible of your own, it, it's, it's page 929 of that pew Bible there. It's Acts chapter 20. Uh, it's, Luke is writing here. Luke's the one who wrote Acts. And he's telling us about a worship gathering of the very early church. And, and looking at this worship gathering in Acts 20 of the very early church, it helps us to see some things. It helps us to see that who they are shapes what they do. Look at Acts 20, verse 7. Just the very first part. It says, on the first day of the week, when they were gathered together. What's the very first thing that we see here? It's that they gathered together. They did so on the first day of the week, the day marking the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They gathered together on Sundays. The called out together did. Who they are, see, shapes what they do. Now, this gathering business, it, it didn't just start in the book of Acts, okay? Uh, it goes all the way back to the beginning. If, if you think about Adam and Eve, way back in the garden, right? Uh, way back there, they, they were together communing with God, walking with him in the cool of the day. God didn't come and walk with Adam for a while and then come and walk with Eve for a while. He walked together with them in the cool of the day. God has always meant for his people to be physically gathered and more specifically physically gathered with him. In Genesis 4, we read about the generation after Adam and Eve. And we read that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. People did. Together, they worshipped. At Sinai, they gathered, right, to receive the Ten Commandments. In the Promised Land, he instructs them to assemble regularly at the temple where he dwelled. In the New Testament, we have Jesus and, and the incarnation. He took on a body and he dwelled amongst us. The same Jesus was very committed to the gathering of God's people. We see it when he was 12. His great desire was to be in his father's house with, with others, right? Luke recounts that it was Jesus' custom to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath. 
This carried on into the early church. They gathered on the first day of the week. They gathered. In Acts chapter 2, when, when Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Later in Acts 2, we, we read of them attending the temple together. Paul, when he's writing instructions to the church in Corinth about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, when you come together as the church, do this. And here in Acts 20, on the first day of the week, Luke says, when we gathered together, who are they, see? They're the church. And who they are shapes what they do. They're the called out together. Which means, listen, we didn't make this up, <laughs> okay? We, we didn't just like, uh, this whole Sunday worship service business, it, it's not man's idea, it's not like, how could we get like, people together? We didn't, we didn't make it up. It's in the scriptures here. We didn't, we didn't come up with it because we're clever or we figured out something that works. We come together because God gathers us together. He initiates. Remember, we are the called out, called out by him, the Lord of the universe, and we're not just the called out, we're the ecclesia. We're the called out together, called out together by him. Even in our call to worship this morning, he doesn't say, you're a bunch of royal priests. He says, you're a royal priesthood. He addresses us together. And listen, our coming together like this, it's not actually optional. Now, I know, like, we like options as human beings. We like to have options. We like to choose and all those sorts of things. But what we're doing right now actually isn't optional. No, we're actually commanded to do this. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. And, but keep a finger in Acts 20. We're coming back to it. But in Hebrews chapter 10, that's page 1007 in, in the Pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 24, we, we read... Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, there's a command here. And <clears throat> the command is that we are to not neglect meeting together. The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. And, and the reason he's saying don't do that is because some were. And he's lovingly, pastorally, gently calling them back. Don't neglect to meet together, he says. Don't neglect the regular assembling of God's people for corporate worship. No, we, we need to do this regularly. Why? Well, it tells us in the scriptures to stir one another up, to love to stir one another up to, to good works. We need to do this to encourage one another all the more as we walk longer and longer together with Jesus waiting for the day of his glorious return. Like we don't need this less as time goes on. We need it more. Now, COVID has made this really challenging, hasn't it? And even if you don't agree it made it challenging, you at least say it's made it complex. Uh, early on in the pandemic, really early on, I was on an email thread with several pastors here in the city. And Brian Clark from Lincoln Berean, um, he sent this email. It was rather lengthy. He sent this email out. And uh, what he was saying essentially in there was he was encouraging pastors to be deeply in prayer for the church in our city. 
um, because he had this sense, not spidey spiritual sense, that uh, the enemy, Satan, really wanted to do some destructive and damaging work in churches in our city during this time. And guys, I remember reading that email like in March or something like that, maybe, I don't remember when it was. I remember reading that and thinking, eh, you might be over-spiritualizing this whole virus thing a little bit, Brian. Right? And then uh, the summer of 2020 came. (laughs) And then the fall of 2020 came. And then early 2021 came, (laughs) and the rest of 2021 came, you know, and and the mixture of not meeting together at all or gathering over live stream or a combo of the two, outside, inside, outside, inside, two services, one service, you know, all of that and not being able, not being able to, in some cases, to gather, choosing not to, in other cases, sometimes for very good reasons and health concerns all the way down to today, but the not gathering together not gathering to stir one another up to love and good works, not gathering all of us to encourage each other, not gathering to sing together and confess together and rest in Christ together and hear the word of God together and be together and proclaim and nurture our unity together at the Lord's table. While the world was on fire, And separating into opposing camps, our togetherness was being impacted. And Satan used all of that. He still is. To rip and pull and isolate and divide. To deceive, discourage, and confuse. This passage here in Hebrews 10 really matters. It matters so much that it comes to us in the form of a command. Now, I know in our day and age, we don't really like anybody telling us what to do. But if God's word can't tell you what to do, nobody can. It comes to us as a command. And then a warning. The command is not to neglect meeting together. The warning, verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, it says. What is sin? Well, it certainly includes a disregard for what God commands. Not doing what God, in his word, commands us to do. In context here, that involves gathering together. And the author of Hebrews says, if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, that's not a good thing, is it? What does it actually say here? It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, I didn't write that, okay? Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just reading it, okay? And and what's primarily in mind here in the context of Hebrews, we got to make sure we don't just rip this out of context and make it conveniently say what we want it to say. In the context of Hebrews are are those who are turning their backs on Jesus, right? That's what Hebrews is about, saying don't, don't turn back from Jesus. There's nothing better than him. It says here, don't neglect gathering together. The New English translation says, not abandoning. So there's a, a giving up on, a, a turning away from. There's intentional, deliberate negligence here, see? The, the writer of Hebrews wasn't writing into a context where there's a pandemic, all right? 
just so happens that I'm preaching in the context of, that there is one. We're living in the context that there is one. Okay, he's not addressing you if you're home today quarantining this morning or taking care of sick kids. That's not what this is about. But if you're not gathering here with us this morning, all right, and there isn't a, a longing to gather together with us here this morning, pay careful attention to yourself. The seeds of neglecting to meet together are quickly planted and easily watered. Especially in Nebraska in the winter. (laughs) It's cold out there. Are you kidding me? Especially in our culture of devaluing what it means to actually be a church and having a very low understanding and implementation of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. You know, I, I would love, I would love, I just would love it if we could take health and the threat of getting a virus and fear, like, completely out of the equation this morning. I'd love it if we could. But I, I've noticed a good many of us have been a little more inconsistent in regularly gathering together lately. You know? E- even those who have had the virus, e- even those who are vaccinated against the virus or don't even care about the virus. Even if we could rewind to pre-pandemic. Remember pre-pandemic? Oh, let's stay there for a second. Let's rewind all the way back to pre-pandemic. And ask yourself, did you take this command seriously as a command from God? Do you take it seriously now as a command from God? Look, No one likes to talk about these things, right? Because it steps on the toes of our autonomy, doesn't it? (laughs) But here it is in the Bible. It's a command with a warning. So we have to talk about it. Your attendance and engagement on Sunday mornings is a critical part of your discipleship. We have to be willing to have the conversation. We have to be willing to ask gently, lovingly, others in in our gospel communities, right? Hey, we we missed you this morning. Were you sick? Were were you traveling? Are are you doing okay? I know you deal with seasonal depression. Is that something that is a struggle for you right now? Can I be praying for you? Are you experiencing conflict with someone in the church that needs to be resolved? Anything preventing you from coming? We've we got to be able to ask those questions so that we can talk about those things and move towards help, if needed, understanding, if needed, compassion, if needed, or repentance, if needed. Following Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5, we're to Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. But we've got to have the conversation. I mean, COVID completely aside, which I know is utterly impossible, and I'm sure that I, I'm absolutely sure that I'd run the risk this morning of someone misunderstanding what I'm trying to say, okay? But I think we've gone a little soft on viewing gathering together as an essential component of our discipleship and a command from God that we're not free to to pick and choose whether we obey or not. 
And when we talk that way, I know what it gets labeled. It gets labeled legalism, you know? Uh, where in reality, the biblical term seems to be obedience. Okay, we're, we're not gathering together to justify ourselves. That would be legalism. If you think that you come here today to, to retain your status before God as one of his children, that's, that's legalism. We come here today to worship him and love him and encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ and to stir one another up to love and good works. That's just obedience. It's not legalism. We're not gathering to justify ourselves. This isn't some giant game of backpat. No, we, we gather to worship Jesus. And some may object. Listen, I view all of life as worship. Not just Sunday mornings. And you'd be absolutely correct to say that all of life is worship. But saying that and dismissing the gathering of God's people skips like a rock over the reality that we don't merely gather as the church to worship. No, we gather to worship because we're the church, the ecclesia, the called out together. Who we are as the church, it shapes what we do. And moving on, what we do as a church Shapes who we are. So what do we do? What, what do we do when, when we gather? Well, number one, we listen to God's word, right? Back in Acts chapter 20, you got your finger still in there? Verse 7, what's it say? On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Some of you thought last week's sermon was long, right? This brother went till, till midnight and, and beyond, right? Verse 11 says that after Eutychus fell asleep out the window, right, Paul goes down, he's like, oh, he's fine, let's get back in here, I got some more to say. He went on till daybreak, till daybreak, right? This is certainly a unique situation, but the point is clear. Central to their gathering was apostolic teaching. We see this in Acts 2, verse 42 as well, where we read that the early church devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. Paul tells young Timothy in his first letter, to, he tells him to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. In 2 Timothy 4, his second letter to him, he tells him, preach the word. Reproving, rebuking, exhorting with complete patience and teaching. When we gather, God's, God's word is to be central. It's one of the small reasons why we don't preach from over here. We preach from over here because God's word is central. From the very beginning, our call to worship is from the word. We hear through it God calling us to him to worship him. We sing the word either directly, you know, or songs themed from the word. Our prayers are shaped and formed by the word. Our confession Often we hear words of assurance from the word, like we just did this morning, or the benediction. The word is preached. Typical for us is, is preaching right through books of the Bible, like Romans, or the Minor Prophets, or the Gospel of Mark, or Exodus. And the goal for me as a preacher, then, is not to stand up here and just share you, with you, you know, my thoughts and ideas and opinions, but to clearly and carefully exposit the Bible and to exalt Jesus. And as we do this, it shapes us. It forms us. As we are called to worship by the word and sing the word and sit under the preaching of the word, we are being spiritually shaped and spiritually formed. 
Like in the middle, in, in the middle of a world filled with lies. And I don't know where your mind just went to when I said that. I'm not just talking about external lies. I'm talking about the lies you tell yourself. In the middle of a world filled with lies, when we gather here like this, we are being reminded of what is true. Formed by what is true. In the middle of a world filled with brokenness. All different kinds. We're hearing of the only true and ultimate solution to all of our problems is Jesus. It's Jesus. We gain perspective. We are warned against sin. We're convicted of sin. We're assured of our salvation, reminded of the gospel. We are encouraged by God's grace, comforted by his spirit, all through his word. And you and I need that. We need it over and over and over again. There's no gospel graduates here, okay? You don't don't ever age out of needing the formation of the word of God. The world is forming you all the time. You think about it, the, the, you know, news, social media, marketing, teachers, influencers, the shows that you watch, the stories that you read, the lives of non-Christians around you, you and I are always being formed. And when we come together here, we participate in counterformation against the formation of the world. That doesn't just happen, okay? We still gotta be intentional. This afternoon, I'm actually gonna post some stuff that I cut from the sermon so we didn't have any Eutychus incidents this morning. Uh, I'm gonna uh, post some stuff to, to realm, some real practical, intentional ways to sit under the teaching of God's word. Because again, who we are as the church, it shapes what we do. And, and what we do as the church, it shapes who we are. The first thing that we do when we gather is we listen to God's word. Secondly now, we share a family meal. Luke mentions the Lord's Supper twice here in our passage. It's there in verse 7, on the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to break bread. It's part of what they were gathered together to do. You see that? It wasn't just like, hey, we got together and uh, anybody got some bread and wine? No, it says the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. It's one of the reasons they gathered. And again, after the Eutychus incident, They go back inside, they broke bread and ate. We're told that they did, in fact, do it. They didn't neglect doing that. They did it. We share in the Lord's Supper here at Two Pillars every week. And although this sermon isn't explicitly on the Lord's Supper, it's important for us to reflect on everything that happens in the Lord's Supper. Uh, One of the best summaries of the Lord's Supper that I've ever found is, is from 1689, the London Baptist Confession. It's really helpful on this point, right? It says of the Lord's Supper that the, the supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth a sacrifice of himself in his death, confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties that they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. And so we partake together of the Lord's Supper for multiple reasons, don't we? 
Like we, we partake to remember, to, to remember the gospel. We're remembering and reflecting upon Christ's body being broken and his blood being poured out for us, for our sins. As we partake, this basic component of the gospel is shown forth, or shewn forth, if you lived in 1689, right? It's a visual proclamation of the gospel, that Jesus really did come as a sacrifice, (laughs) that he really did die as a substitute in our place for our sins. As we partake, we receive confirmation of our faith as well, that our faith isn't in ourselves. Our faith is in the finished work of Jesus. We're confirmed in our belonging to him. You know, taking the supper each week is God's way of saying to you, it is God's way of reminding you, you are so incredibly deeply loved. It's his way of reminding you, I, sent, I love you so much, I sent my son to live and die for you. It's his way of telling you, you are completely and forever adopted in me. That he's doing good work in you. That he hasn't forgotten you. He's never going to forsake you. That he's coming back for you. You have an internal inheritance with him and every spiritual blessing is yours already in Christ. That's incredible. We also receive in a more mysterious way spiritual nourishment here at this table. Spiritual nourishment. It's a means of grace the Lord's Supper is. Meaning we're not just remembering that Christ gave himself for us. We're actually experiencing Christ giving himself to us, nourishing us. We're reminded that we have duties as Christians, which is just another way to say obedience matters. And then lastly, by partaking in this meal, we both portray and nurture our unity as a local body of Christ. We come together around this table. It's a bond and pledge of our communion with God and with each other, the old confession says, and we do it each week. As we do, we're shaped and we're formed by this. And it's not that fancy, is it? You know, Brad bought the bread at Russ's probably yesterday, and somebody else in this city bought the same bread, took it home, and ate it with spaghetti last night. It's not, there's nothing magical here. Nothing magical about that bread. Nothing magical about that wine. Like this meal, when we partake in it, it's not geared to hype you up and to leave you with a spiritual high. It's, can we use the word? It's, it's a ritual. An ordinary means of grace. And that cuts against the grain of what we might sometimes prefer aspects of our worship gatherings to be, which is more expressive. Listen to how Christian philosopher James K. Smith puts this. This is long, but it's worth it. He says, if you think of worship as expressive, you'll tend to confuse ritual with works righteousness. That is, you'll look at liturgical worship, okay, Christian worship that reflects ancient forms and practices. Here we might include the regular weekly observance of the Lord's Supper. But you'll, you'll, uh, you'll view those, you'll look at those as insincere ways that people try to earn God's favor. But... In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise, bottom up. 
That's what we typically think of worship. We come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called instead to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't something that we just do. It's where God does something to us. Therefore, worship is not primarily a venue for innovative creativity, but a place of discerning repetition, or I'm sorry, discerning reception and faithful repetition. Almost sounds boring. When you unhook worship from mere expression, it also completely retools your understanding of repetition. If you think of worship as bottom-up, expressive endeavor, repetition will seem insincere and inauthentic, and I might add boring. But when you see worship as an invitation to a top-down encounter in which God is refashioning your deepest habits, then repetition looks very different. It's how God rehabituates us. In a formational paradigm, repetition isn't insincere because you're not showing, you're submitting. This is crucial because there's no formation without repetition. You see what he's saying? He's saying what we do as the church shapes who we are. The Lord's Supper as a sacrament is, is shaping. And we, we don't read of baptism taking place here in the text in, in Acts 20. Um, no midnight baptisms or anything like that going on at Troas. But it too is another sacrament that is both declarative and shaping, marking off the church from the unbelieving world. We'll touch more on baptism later in the series. Well, the last thing that I want to draw our attention to that we do when we gather is sing together. Again, that's not explicit in Acts 20, but we know um, Mark records that Jesus, after he instituted the Lord's Supper, Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples sung a hymn. God's people singing to God is, is found all throughout the Bible, actually. From Exodus 15, after they crossed the Red Sea, what did they do? They sang. They sang a song. Like, that was awesome. Let's sing about that, you know? Um, it, the Psalms, songs, continues all the way to Revelation 5 where we see God's people gathered around his throne singing to him. I mean, if you don't like singing, you're gonna, you're gonna have, it's going to be hard in heaven for you, okay? Um, Paul instructs the, the church in Ephesus this way. He, he says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord, with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here I just want to make a few points, important points about our singing, okay? Number one, it's coming right out of this text. Number one, you're not the primary audience here. Sorry to break that to you. Right? In Ephesians 5, we see the dual direction of singing together. We sing to one another Addressing one another, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, edifying one another, and we sing to God, giving thanks always and for everything to Him. That's where our singing's directed. Singing in corporate worship is, is not about us expressing ourselves as individuals. It's, it's not about the warm fuzzies you feel when we sing that one song that you really like in the way that you like to sing it. Okay? It's not. It's not. 
No, singing in corporate worship is primarily about your brothers and sisters in this room and God. That's who it's directed to. One of the most powerful moments of, of singing that I've ever experienced is being at a, a gathering of pastors down in Oklahoma City, and we were singing this song, and there's this guy in the front row. I thought he was weird at first, and he's, let's just say I'm in the front row, right? And he's, we're singing together, we're all pointing this way, and he's looking back like this. Like, he's just like singing, he's, he's singing to God, he's singing to you all. You know, it was, it's a powerful moment. It's just like, that guy's weird, but he gets it. He gets it. I don't do that very often. Yeah, it's kind of weird, you know, but, but he gets it. Our singing is directed to one another and to God, which means it's not about your preferences. And man, this is so hard for us as humans. You realize how much of your life is curated around your preferences right now? Holy moly. Is there very many parts that aren't? <laughs> if I took your Spotify playlists, right? If I just looked through your Spotify playlists, do you know what they're filled with? Songs you like, <laughs> right? Um, when you sing in the shower or in your car, when was the last time that you sang a song in the, in the shower or in your car that you didn't like? <laughs> it's an absurd question, isn't it? Music that, that, that you prefer, you know, that, that we're just sort of swamped in our preferences. But when we come together for corporate worship, it's not all about us. This is really important to grasp. And it's actually really important. It's, it's really an important part of what we do as a church, how what we do as a church shapes us. It shapes us away from expressive individualism. It shapes us away from always demanding what I want, what I like, what I prefer. Perhaps in no other area than music is it so plain for us to see and seek to understand that who we are as a church shapes what we do and what we do as a church shapes who we are. <laughs> Number two, music or singing is not equivalent with worship. Okay, everything we do here on Sunday mornings is worship. It's not just preaching. It's not preaching and worship. Like worship is the whole thing. The reason this is important is because if we equate music with worship, then if you if you mess with someone's musical preferences or if you don't meet them, it's like you're threatening their access to God. I hear people say all the time, "I really like the preaching at, at such and such a church, and I really like the worship at this other church." listen, that, that's a false dichotomy. It's a perspective informed by our culture of individualism and consumerism far more than it is by the Bible and what it means to be an ecclesia. Number three, Sunday worship is not to be the extent of your worship. Remember, all of life is worship. But if Sunday mornings becomes our only encounter with God's presence in worship, we will intuitively demand way too much out of it. Distractions, uh, mistakes, someone starting off, off key on a song like what happened last week or one of the slides being, being wrong th th this morning. You know, in other words, the, the human moments of corporate worship will drive you crazy. And rather than responding in grace in those moments, we'll respond with a grade. Songs, though absolutely biblical in content, but don't make the cut on our own personal top 40, we won't enjoy. We might not even sing. 
because we just don't feel like it. I get music, huge part of worshiping the Lord. Huge part, I get it. But we have to fight for the relentless elimination of expressive individualism and consumerism when it comes to singing in corporate worship. Listen to how one author has summed this up for us. He says, if we think of ourselves as consumers, we will view ourselves as the audience. And the preacher and others assisting and leading the service, especially the musicians, as performers there to inspire and perhaps entertain us, rather than understanding that God is the audience. And we are beggars, rebels, and enemies, made heirs, friends, and children of God through the Father's love, the Son's obedience, death, and resurrection, and the Spirit's new birth. And that when we come now, by His grace, to give something to God that He alone deserves, And that we can only give him through Jesus Christ in order that we might be what he made us to be, worshipers. And enjoy what he made us to enjoy. The greatest, best treasure in the world, the triune God himself and communion with him. That was one sentence. (laughs) Good night, that was crazy. Why go to church? Because we're commanded to. That's in the Bible. We, we go because inherent to who we are as the church, we, we, we are the called out together people and who we are shapes what we do. And because what we do, listening to God's word, speaking the word, praying the word, sharing the family meal, singing together, it all shapes who we are. From the outside looking in, it is not that impressive. Like if you were that same creeper in my living room window, you know, and you came and you creeped in one of these windows over here, if you could see through them, right? What you would see in here looks pretty ordinary. You know, we got glitter on the floor. There's some wax still around from the candles on Christmas Eve. You know, we come in here. We're not that impressive people. From the outside looking in, it's, it's, it, there's no hype show here. We don't have lasers or fog machines. We're not aiming for an emotional high that keeps you coming back like a spiritual junkie. In large part, what we do are the same things over and over and over again. The same ordinary things over and over and over again. You're called to worship by the sovereign Lord of the world. We lift our voices together in, in adoration of our good God. We confess our sin. We hear a, a word of, of assurance reminding us of, of all that is true of us in Jesus. And we give thanks to him. How can we help but give thanks to him? We pray. We hear a sermon. We partake in the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we see baptisms. We sing some more. We're sent out of here. When you multiply that over 52 weeks a year, multiply it further over years and decades of a faithful lifetime. It numbers into the hundreds 
It numbers into the thousands, shaping and forming us. Who we are as the church shapes what we do, and what we do as the church, it shapes who we are. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what an incredible blessing it is to be your people. Who are we that you would set your love upon us? You would rescue us from Satan, sin, and death. You would call us your own and call us together to worship you. Thank you for corporate worship. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our brothers and sisters in this room. Thank you for the encouragement that we receive when we come together like this. Thank you for the opportunity to stir one another up to love and good works. Spirit, would you continue to shape us more and more into who we are? your ecclesia. And we pray in the name of the one who gave himself up for the church, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.